and welcome to the official D&D podcast. It's been months since the last uh, podcast happened. Uh, I'm community manager Michael Robles, uh, and with me is Mike Murrells and Jeremy Crawford. Uh, let's just jump right into it. Uh, for those that may be new to the podcast, uh, or even for some of our returning listeners, uh, just give yourselves a little bit of intro uh, and, and what you guys are doing here at Wizards of the Coast. I feel like we're coming out of hibernation. It's been so long <laughs> since we've done a podcast. Um, I'm Jeremy Crawford. Uh, I oversee development and editing for Dungeons & Dragons. And I'm Mike Merles. I'm the senior manager for the D&D research and design team. All right. Uh, and we're, we're here to talk about the, the big thing, the big thing that everybody knows about, everybody wants questions about, and that is D&D Next. is the biggest thing that right now is on everybody's mind. I mean, it's hit... Various news outlets, the internets are all abuzz with with D and D next, and so let's let's go ahead and just jump right into your guys' involvement with D and D next, and we'll start out with the biggest thing for those that may not know, what is D and D next? Well, D and D next is the next iteration of, of the D and D tabletop role playing game rules, um, and it's basically our attempt to create a set of rules that when you look back across the entire almost 40-year history of D&D, it's one set of rules that can be used to play D&D in any one of the many ways in which the game has commonly been played. Um, so as senior manager, uh, my job is to set the overall vision for the game and then to help the individual design team, the, de uh, the development team, and the editing team complete the work on the game. So I'm basically kind of the uh, conductor on the train, I guess I'd say. <laughs> Uh, Monty Cook is our lead designer on the project, and then on the project I'm overseeing development, and when we get to the point where we're editing products, I'll be overseeing uh, the editing of those products as well. Um, it, as, as Mike said, uh, one of our, our goals for this project right from the start, I mean, when, when it was sort of a tiny little baby of an idea when we were we we didn't even know yet that we were officially working on the next iteration of the game uh, one of our goals was to create something that spoke to the huge diversity of tastes that people bring to D&D uh, because we acknowledge that uh, this game appeals to gamers of all sorts, uh, people who love to dive into a dungeon and hew their way through monster after monster without a story in sight, um, all the way on to the other end of the spectrum groups where they will have hours and hours of conversations with the Duke and the Vizier and will be coming <laughs> up with complicated plots and trying to discover some way to undermine entire kingdoms without ever raising a sword or casting a, a hostile spell. And, you know, and, and between those two extremes, all of that is Dungeons and & Dragons and has been since its beginning in the 70s. And that's got to be a huge undertaking, especially to get those two extremes and try to find a way to manage the two of them. How are, uh, what's one of the ways you guys have been focusing how to get those different play styles to come together? Well, one of the big steps we're taking is boiling the mechanics of the game down to their simplest basic elements. Uh, beginning with a the theory that back in the 70s, um, and especially with basic D&D, &D, uh, there really weren't a lot of rules to the game. They were more of a loose structure 
uh, that DMs used, rather than looking at the rule and just following what the rule said, they used the rule as a starting point to make a ruling for a specific situation they had to resolve. So we're kind of starting there, but we also realize that there are DMs who want more rules, who want more of a codified game system to play with. But by starting with that very simple core and, and understanding that you can play D&D and what anyone would recognize as D&D with a very simple core, we can then build out rules modules from there that individual DMs and gaming groups can use to create the specific D&D experience that they want. And it's all building on the very simple principle that it is it is easier to have a game with a very lean foundation and build on that than to approach it the other way of having an extremely intricate core where you then have to try to pull pieces out or modify them. Our goal is to have this core where you can just simply add something on top of it but have the core stay the same so that that core experience will be common from table to table but that the details layered on top of it uh, can change depending on DM taste, player taste, mm -hmm. and whatnot. Uh, another big thing that we've been open about, I'm pretty sure we've been open about, and it's, you know how things get with, <laughs> uh, are, the, are the open playtests that we've talked about. And you guys have been gathering feedback. We've already started open playtests, I believe. Is that, is that right? We, uh, we haven't. We've started we haven't. an external playtests. So basically there's like, we call it, we have internal playtests, which are, you know, people in the building playing the game. Uh, we have about 1,100 or so people who are n not at Wizards employees who are playing the game. Right. And then we're working toward having a public playtest. We'll have a much broader group of people will be able to get access to the materials we're working on. All right, so let's talk about the external playtest. I'm sure you guys have gotten a ton of good feedback. Uh, and what we can talk about uh, is between those playtests, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's not just 4th edition or Essentials players that it's those playtests are encompassing all manner of D&D uh, players, those that go all the way back to older editions from the 70s. Um, how have those uh, helped in the development? I think the biggest thing we found is uh, that people's tastes don't generally follow the edition they may say they prefer. Hmm. There are some general trends, but I think what we're finding is what people really want from D&D uh, is simplicity seems to be a thing that comes up again and again. We have, I haven't seen too much feedback that says we want things to be more complicated. If anything, yeah, well, if anything, what we see is people just saying, I'd like to have more options. Hmm. You know, and so when they think, I think what we're kind of learning maybe a little bit of the audience is that people don't necessarily want, yeah, they don't want a complex option. They just want to feel they can build the character they want to play. Right. And DMs feel they have the tools to create the campaign they want to create. So it, in some ways, it kind of helped validate that idea of this modular approach. Um, the other thing that was interesting was seeing how many people reacted positively to having maybe a more freer approach to the DMing process, where the DM is more like the guy in charge of the rules, who's free to make rulings, who isn't necessarily forced to obey the rules, and what that means for how we want to create character options and how that interacts with maybe different rules modules that DMs are using. The... Um, and, uh, you know, we've gotten some feedback we sort of expected. Uh, the, the, the rules, the initial rules draft we created, it was just that. It's a draft. It's mm -hmm. been created in the past you know, a month or two before we started the entire process. Um, we've been thinking about it for a while, but not actually doing work yet. And there's a lot of, like, specific things, like in terms of healing and how to get that right. You know, it, there's a funny thing. I think we did a, a – I forget if this was from playtest feedback or it was a public survey we did, but of people saying they want to be threatened 
at all the time in D&D, but they don't necessarily want their characters to die. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And and so how do you hit that point where people feel threatened, but they also don't feel like they're just getting overwhelmed all the time? So it's it's very tricky to get those things right. And I think it kind of goes back to, in that case, like just giving DMs the the feeling ability that they can tinker with the rules or create a campaign that is what they want to do with their group. And, and, And it is amazing how often we get... 50-50 splits, pretty much, Mm. in some of the feedback. You will have people saying, oh, the greater lethality is awesome. The other half of the people, this game is way too lethal. (laughs) Now, someone could say, well, that means we've actually hit our target exactly. Because if, if, you know, you have essentially a wash where the, the two groups of people are canceling each other out. But it's not quite as easy as that, because what that feedback is telling us is... The, the lethality in the game is causing a reaction. Mm-hmm. And so what that causes us to do is then analyze what we've done and see why is, why is a reaction occurring. Yeah. Um, and maybe it's for positive reasons. Maybe we'll discover over the coming months of playtesting that people are reacting because we're doing exactly what we should do. But we keep pressing because we might discover, whoop, there is something that's not quite right, that's not quite hitting that right tone for for a classic Dungeons and Dragons feel. Yeah. Um, and and that and this is why playtesting and especially extensive playtesting is so vital so that we can kind of tease these things out. Um, because we always have to be really cautious not to respond uh, too quickly to the playtest feedback we get uh, because often the most important lessons we get are the lessons between the lines. It's often not what the people are saying, but it's how they're saying it. Right. It's the it it. And sometimes it's not even that. You know, uh, I I hate spells or the way spells are implemented. It's more important to us to see what their emotional response is, um, what's getting them passionate, and for us to go investigate that piece of the game. Right. Uh, coming as from someone who's actually played months ago some of the first playtest, I am super excited for for the next iteration and to see what, what comes next. Um, what Have there been any, like, surprises? I mean, you mentioned, obviously, that uh, some people, you said, they uh, may not like the version they claim to like. Have there been any other sort of surprises or was one of those things that you looked at when you got feedback from the playtest or even during development that you went, huh, and just hadn't realized that maybe something was going that way? Yeah, you know, there was a few mechanics where we thought, well, at least I thought, these might not be popular or they'd be pushback. So, for instance, right now, and I'll give like a little hint to kind of things we're working on. <laughs> I don't know if this has been mentioned before, but uh, you know, just simple things like um, we have a mechanic in place now where there's an auto-success mechanic where, for example, if you have an 18 strength and you want to bat- batter down the door, the DM can just say, yes, you do that. You don't even need to make a check. Or, you know, when you make a check, you know there's a minimum result you can get based right. on your ability or training and things like that. And I've been really surprised at how positive people have been toward that. I think players really like feeling that empowerment, that they know my character is strong or my character is smart, and therefore I know that I can act in a strong or smart way. The, um, and that's a case, too, where, kind of like what Jeremy was saying, you know, we have to get the full story. It isn't enough just to have people say, hey, we like this mechanic. We also have to make sure that it's working well for DMs, that DMs don't feel like, well, I'm having trouble challenging my players. Or then we have to think longer term, well, as you're leveling up, do you feel like you're getting better at this? Or are you starting out very skilled at first level and not getting much better, and is that satisfying? So really what the questions and these reactions help us do is they help us shape in the next phase as we start doing more work. It sort of shapes what our priorities are for things we want to address. Another thing that was a pleasant surprise to me, and this came out in some of the earliest playtesting, and that is how much many people 
liked being able to play without miniatures. Um, hmm. And so for any of our listeners who haven't had a chance to, to play test yet, uh, we have done our design so that the game does not assume that you're using miniatures. To be clear, you can use miniatures, and many of us have been using miniatures, but it, it is returned to being an option, as, yeah. it, as mm-hmm. it was in earlier editions of the game. And you know, the way we talk about it is, we don't want to require miniatures, but we want to support their use. And we knew that some people would feel very disoriented if they suddenly entered a battle and there were no miniatures on the table, there was no grid. <laughs> um, but, but I was very pleased when we started reading the feedback to see the number of people who loved that flexibility of being able in one encounter if they wanted to, especially if let's say they're just trying to take out a couple of orcs guarding the entrance into a fort, that they could have that battle in a matter of minutes, no need for miniatures to be laid out, um, and it could all just occur in their imaginations. And you know, on the flip side, that flexibility also meant that if they were in a more intricate encounter, you know, they're inside a temple with a high priest and a bunch of cultists, and there are pillars and there are you know braziers with purple fire that are going to explode out. Sure, that can all be played out with miniatures, just as people are used to in third and fourth edition. And so again, people have responded positively uh, to that feedback. We've had some people who have you know to be you know in the interest of frankness who have responded negatively, but it's been pretty clear in the feedback that the negative response has arisen from a misunderstanding, and that is. I think sometimes they've come into these encounters and seen that there is there are no miniatures on the table and therefore think the game doesn't support the use of miniatures at all. Whereas again, our goal is, hey, if you want to use miniatures in every encounter the way you do in third and fourth, go for it. Knock yourself out. There are many of us in the building who will probably do so. Uh, but if you want to mix it up and have no miniatures in some encounters and, and miniatures in others, you can do that too. Yeah, coming from someone, like, I actually started with 4th edition, and uh, James White was my very first DM, and so, like, I got this, we got a really nice mix of, yes, we had miniatures, uh, but for the most part, we we would, you know, James is a very big, you know, he's an actor, so he's very big in, in some of the role-playing stuff, and our group was a mixed bag, sort of, half actors, half of his older party. And so when I started doing the playtest, uh, and one of the first things we had no miniatures, I, it was very obvious that some of the folks in my playtest were really uncomfortable at first. But once we got into it, it just it smooth it went so smoothly, and the rest was like we couldn't wait for the next time we got together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's going to be interesting, and I, and I definitely want to see how that how it's going to happen. Like I'm glad that we are doing it where we can support the miniatures, or people can just play with it like very old school way the way the way they want to. Um, you guys, want to take some questions from Twitter? Go for it. I got, sure, I got yeah. some Twitter questions. Uh, so obviously, we're on we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter. Uh, we interact tons on both uh, Twitter. We are uh, at uh, wizards underscore d and d, uh, and most of the time we're just talking away. Uh, so I got some really good questions from Twitter, specifically about d and d next. Um, uh, oh, there it is. Uh, and so feel free to be able to answer these or not if we haven't disclosed information yet. <laughs> uh, the first one we got is, uh, how, are the, uh, how are themes been envisioned for D&D Next in comparison with the 4th edition ones? The way we're looking at themes in Next uh, follows some of the similar structures that you saw in 4th edition where the theme gives you a place in the world. Um, so the way a theme would work, if you're not familiar with the 4th edition version, is you might have the noble theme. 
And the noble theme comes with a set of like background story hooks, uh, maybe maybe questions to consider about your character. You might find essentially what you'd think of as skills, that instead of your class giving you skills, like your class might give you a couple skill-like abilities that are iconic to the class, but your actual things you can do, things you've learned and trained might all come from your, your theme. So as a noble, you might know heraldry. You might know diplomacy because you're used to dealing with others, things like that. And then it might also give you then some abilities on top of it that enforce the idea that, hey, you're a noble. Um, you might have access to other nobles since you have a title and you have some amount of authority. You can, you know, for example, if you're playing Keep on the Borderlands uh, and you're a noble, you might be able to get an audience with the Castellan of the Keep because he would recognize, hey, you're an important figure. You have mm. some authority. Um, you might begin play, and these are all theoretical because we haven't fully designed this stuff. Um, you might begin play with a servant, right? The someone else, they're 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 like if they're a hunter is their theme. Like maybe their beginning thing was well, they're pretty good with the bow, or they're good at woodcraft. Well, you're a nobleman, so you have a servant that you've hired. You know things like that, or your family is providing to you as a nobleman, and then you might have a stat block. He's essentially kind of your you can come in and do what you want, right? He might be carrying your gear, he might be trying to protect you while you're casting a spell, and things like that. But really, getting players immersed, and the idea is conceptually when we're talking about the game, you know, we look at like race and class, and things have been always been part of D and D in one form or the other, and then when we looked at things like skills and feats. What kind of occurred to us was that these things are really just a way for you to customize your character. That's really what they're about. You're playing a human fighter, but then you want to add a twist to that. And what we wanted to do with the themes was to create a way in which if, A, you don't really care about customizing your character, you just want to make, like, one choice, you can just opt into, well, I'll just be a noble, just pick one thing. Or maybe even I'm just rolling on a table. What was my character before he was an adventurer? You roll the table, hey, get noble, and this means this is what's happening. And it gives you an easy way to think of your character's place in the world and your past. So it's creating a story there for you that you know to use as you want. And then on the other hand, um, it lets us kind of approach this idea of customizing your character to give people kind of a framework to approach it, if you are the guy who wants to make a lot of individual decisions, you could imagine, for example, if themes are made up of skills and feats, that you could then build your own theme. So it's not just saying, hey, if you're an optimizer, through feats and skills is your ability to create a really deadly character or a character does one thing really well. There is that type of player. But what we want to also do is for the for other types of players we see out there, like for a storyteller or someone who just wants to be really immersed in the world, or the guy who just wants to make a character as quickly as possible, this is a tool you're using to explore what you like about D&D. Rather than creating a one-size-fits-all, well, really, picking your feats is really about optimization because feats drive combat, we're moving away from that and saying, no, this idea of a theme, your ability to customize your character, we're going to allow you to decide how you want to use this and then build a system that supports that. So, uh, and it's one of the things that people have responded to pretty positively, you know, because it, I think it is meeting a need where if you aren't really that mechanical optimizer, it might be, it's being presented in a way that you hadn't seen before, but it might be speaking to how you've always wanted it to work. So, and that's the kind of thing we're trying to do is kind of tease out these things of, well, when you think of D&D players, what do they want out of the game? Instead of just saying like, well, let's put feats in the game because feats have been in the game, or let's get, get rid of feats because of, you know, whatever. The, we're saying more, hey, well, what's our audience like? Why do they like playing D&D? What do they want the game to deliver? And we're starting using that as the starting point rather than just saying, well, this is how D&D has always been, so it has to be this way. I mean, that's a way you can start, but we want to make sure we're not, we're not doing things blindly. We're doing things because we're saying, this is aimed at the old school player. This is aimed at the guy who wants a great story. This is aimed at the guy who wants to like look through every single mathematical combo and make the most effective character. We're aiming these options at those different types of players so you can find the thing in D&D that gets you excited. 
Jeremy, any, was that, was that <laughs> well, no, no my, Mike's answer was very comprehensive. <laughs> uh, no, I, I will just add that uh, themes have been um, one of my favorite parts of the design, uh, particularly because you know we're coming we're coming from a set of themes in fourth edition where a lot of them are very compelling, mm-hmm. but they were an optional add-on that came relatively late in the edition. So this time we're getting to see what we can do when they're there right from the start. Exactly. And, and, and that means they can have much greater resonance for, for characters and for the game as a whole. Um, there's also something very old school about them because this, this is an area of the game that's always been there but, has, but in the past not fully fleshed out. Because you go back to first edition and you, and you go to the DMG and there was this section that you could use on secondary, it was called secondary skills. And you could roll on this table and you would discover that, hey, my character is a blacksmith or you know, my character was a sailor. And so there's always been this grasping in the game toward who is my character other than a fighter? You know, what, what did my cleric do before she joined the temple and, and began you know, her training in her religious order? And... I think this is something that's always been of interest to D&D players. You know, in second edition, it reemerged in some, in some ways in the kit system. Um, mm-hmm. You know, where you know, my character is not only a wizard, but also a witch. Uh, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think, I think themes will have worked if the AD&D player, the first edition player, looks at them and thinks, oh, these, these are like secondary skills. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'll, in, my, in my game, house rule that we won't even use them. And the second edition player may look at it and go, oh, these are like kits. And the third edition player may look at it and think, oh, this is these are my skills and feats, right? And, and probably a similar thing for the fourth edition player. Right. So again, each player, and it, it kind of underscores what we want with this modularity, not just within turning switches on and off, but also even within the things we make that's part of the core, that they are serving the DM, they're serving the players in the way they want them to. We're not forcing things onto people and saying, well, you must play D&D this way. We're giving you, here's the basic of the game, basic parts of the game. Use them as you want to use them. Hmm. All right. Uh, i got one more question here. Uh, people keep mentioning that modules need a foundation. What would be the basic foundational version, uh, or I'm sorry, what would the basic foundational version of D&D Next look like? It would probably look a lot like basic D&D. Um, very, very mm-hmm. lean. As, as I mentioned before, um, you know, a, a, a kind of experience and a set of rules that would work in pretty much any group with any, any taste on that sort of taste spectrum that I talked about before. You know, we are aiming for a set of rules that will be at home in a combat-heavy campaign as well as in a role-playing-heavy campaign. And, and, and again, because of that goal, it has to be straightforward um, it can't have too many bells and whistles, but it needs to have just enough that we can deliver a classic D&D experience, no matter which modules you layer on top of it. Yeah, you could imagine that the, the core rules, I'm not talking about classes right now, but just the actual rules of play, look very similar to like the 1981 basic D&D set. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the classes look probably kind of like the AD&D classes, but just with a few more features added on for the, the higher levels of play, for, especially for fighters and rogues. 
with spellcasters, obviously, you're getting more spells, you're getting more powerful. We just want to make sure that we have parity in terms of fighters versus wizards. You don't feel that any class becomes useless at higher levels, or that one class, because of access to spells, is just can easily take the place of the other classes. Like one of the things we talked about was um, in terms of balance was to make sure that if a wizard casts haste on someone, that person still isn't attacking as often as a fighter of the same level as the wizard mm-hmm. when he gets haste, things like that. So you just feel like, okay, the fighter is still the best guy at fighting. Buff spells and things like that aren't overwhelmingly better than the fighter. They're a nice little supplement, but they're not as good as what the fighter can get. The um, So I think that's generally what you'd see. You'd see classes that look pretty straightforward, uh, pretty compact rule system, and also just in terms of the breadth of options, like in terms of spells, we'd want to go for just maybe like the six most iconic spells at each level, things like that. The, um, and we'd probably have like a, a fire and forget style magic system as the core, but we would also, I mean, just based on the popularity of it, have some sort of at will magic abilities for clerics and wizards on top of that. So because we just see if you're a wizard, people like feeling like they can cast spells round by round in a battle, or even just doing tricks, you know, little things to alter someone's mood or things like that. And and anyone listening carefully to what Mike just said will be able to to be able to de- detect that. Even that basic version of the game will have things in it that lovers of all of the previous editions will recognize and say, ah, that's from 4th edition. Ah, mm-hmm. that's from 3rd edition. Oh, that's from 2nd. And here's this little bit from 1st. And, and here's this little bit from the Minster Red, red Box. Yeah. <laughs> um, there, it, in many cases, none of those things will be there in exactly the form they were in before. I mean, because... This isn't just a sort of collage of previous things. This is this is something being designed and carefully uh, stitched together, um, and so really many of those things will feel like they're making a reappearance. Um, in some cases, in a wildly new form. In other cases, they'll be almost identical to their form in previous editions. All right. Uh, so before we say goodbye uh, to to our two guests. I want them to throw this question at you guys. Uh, in one word, describe the development of D&D Next. Stressful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, multifaceted. <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, and so, uh, listeners, if you're looking for information on uh, on on for the public playtest or, or playtesting or just any information on D&D Next, you can go to dndnext.com or email dndinsider at wizards.com. Uh, Mike, Jeremy, thank you guys so much for taking time out of your day to, to come and talk with us about D&D Next. I'm very, very excited for it. It's cool. been a pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thank you, guys. All right, and we're back. Uh, with me is Rodney Thompson. Uh, Rodney, let's tell the folks who you are. Well, I am a game designer here at Wizards of the Coast. I worked on Star Wars role-playing game products uh, for the Saga Edition line. I also uh, worked on Dungeons and Dragons, the role-playing game. I still do. And, of course, I worked on some of the board games, including Lords of Waterdeep. And that is what we're here to talk about. Yes. Uh, we're here to talk about Lords of Waterdeep. Rodney, what is Lords of Waterdeep, and why is it most the most amazing game in the world ever? Uh, so Lords of Water- Waterdeep is a strategy board game that is set in the Forgotten Realms setting. Basically, you take on the role of one of the Lords of Waterdeep, the secret masked rulers of the city, and you send your agents out into the city to recruit adventurers, send them on quests, and increase your influence over the city. Uh, so that's the flavorful description of it, but basically <laughs> the mechanical description is that it's sort of a Euro-style board game in the worker placement genre, 
what makes it really exciting to me is that it's one of the few Euro games out there that use this worker placement mechanic that you can play in an hour, right? And it's it's about a 60 to 80 minute playtime, depending on if you have four or five players. It plays great with two or three as well. Uh, it plays differently, but it's one of our primary goals was to make sure that we had a consistent experience, and that consistent experience was about an hour playtime, satisfying mechanics, and thanks to the cards that you use to set up the game, every game you play is going to be a little bit different. And so you mentioned that it's it's a Euro style game, and so uh, I own every board game we've we've ever made. I got right. Wrath, right. Dreads, whatever. And this is such a different shift in style of board game. How did that shift in this board game? Like, where did this board game come from? This idea come from? Sure. Well, I play a lot of board games of all different stripes from all different companies, and. We hadn't made a Euro-style game yet, and I really like that kind of game because it focuses a little bit more on strategy and a little bit less on randomness, and I thought that was something that we could branch out into, but we hadn't done so yet. So uh, it just so happened that Peter Lee and I had done some brainstorming together, and I came up with the idea, the initial idea for the game based on our conversations, uh, and then it just blossomed into this sort of dream project. I've literally never worked on another game that has led such a charmed life. (laughs) From the very beginning, it was fun, and that almost never happens. I mean, I, I spend most of my days here designing things, and then we'll test it, and be like, wow, that was a disaster. <laughs> but here's how we're going to make it work. That that did not happen with a lot of you. So tell us about some of the design process. Like what You said this has just been a complete dream for you yeah. to work on. It's been super fun. Why was some of it like so fun? What? How did it take us through maybe a couple of steps? Sure. So the initial design was, and I've told the story several times before, yeah. but the initial design was done on a train, and I had written up this design document. When I came back, we put together the prototype, and we played. And at the point where we played our first game, and it was a lot of fun, at that point we knew that we wanted to keep working on it. So Peter and I would kind of steal a little bit of time here and there because this wasn't an official project or anything and we would steal some time here and there to develop the game and then play test it and then develop it and play test it it actually ended up forming the foundation of a uh, design process and a development process that we've adopted for a lot of our different games we call it <laughs> rapid iteration um, but basically what it means is that we we play and as we're playing we're sort of looking and making notes and then at the end of the session we'll do some discussion go through and make our changes right then and then play again immediately so that you get that very quick turnaround time and so we've adapted that to the dungeon command game that we're doing and I'm hoping to adapt it to uh, some more of our uh, role-playing game design as well. Uh, the game's been out for a little bit now. Uh, it's got some great reviews uh, pretty much everywhere. I shouldn't say some. All the reviews I've read have been uh, amazing for this game. <laughs> Are there any uh, surprises or have there been any things that come up for you that you're like, huh, I didn't think that was going to happen or that's so weird that people found this uh, in the game? I'm surprised that I still like to play it. Uh, <laughs> it's one of those deals where, you know, most designers will tell you that after they're done with something, they have been so close to it for a while that they have to set it aside and not come back to it. But I've never gone through, I haven't gone through that yet with Waterdeep, let's put it that way. <laughs> um, as for things I'm surprised about the, the community, not really. I, there have been a few things where I was like, oh yeah, I guess you could read the rules this way, but those are usually minor things. I've, I've been pleasantly surprised at how well it's been received. I mean, I thought it was good, but well, again, once you're so close to something, you have no idea how people are going to receive it, right? Um, I I have been actually really pleasantly surprised 
how well the D&D gamer audience has taken to it, because there's typically, I don't want to say something of a divide, but there's definitely two different camps, and the, the kind of gamers that really strongly identify as D&D players, and the kind of uh, uh, players who identify as like Euro board gamers, because right. D, if, if D&D were a board game, it would fall into more of what we call the Ameritrash style, which is an affectionate uh, nickname for <laughs> games that have dice and lots of randomness and craziness. So there's sort of two different camps, and I, I've been happy how it's been able to bridge the gap. I've seen a lot of people that are you know, self-described diehard Euro gamers that have said, hey, it's great to finally have a Dungeons & Dragons game because I, I love playing Dungeons & Dragons, but I don't play it anymore because I play board games. And so those guys have been really you know, excited about, here's a Euro game with a theme that I love. And then on the same side, I've seen a lot of people saying, wow, I've never played this style of game before, but it's something that I really want to try out because... I've never played this genre, yet I know things about D&D, so I can easily jump in and sort of imagine what's going on. So it's kind of bringing those two groups together in a way that I'm extremely happy about. Were there any uh, cards... Uh, any, I wanna, yeah, I'm going to go straight with the entry cards. Okay. Uh, were there any entry cards that you designed and thought, this is too broken, and like didn't get into the game? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that didn't get into the game? That did yeah. not get into the game. Absolutely. I want to know, know about a card oh, that wow. didn't get into the game. Uh, gosh, I'm trying to think. Well, so some of them turned into other cards. Like, uh, we, um, our promo card uh, oh, is card. Inevitable Betrayal. And Inevitable Betrayal is I take some gold and an adventure from you, and then I give you the card. That card started out as a card that we called Old Maid. And it was just <laughs> a real, it was a punishment card, but the player that ended the game with it, got a bunch of points at the end of the game. Hmm. But instead, we turned it into something that, no, you actually pass it around the table. Uh, as for things that were too broken, uh, you have to understand that I stopped working on this about a year ago, so uh, those brain stills are still a little rusty. Um, for the most part, most of the things we ended up cutting were things that were really targeted, aggressive cards. Right. So it would be things like... Um, you just play this card, and that player would just straight up lose some points, right? Like, target, uh, pick an opponent, that opponent loses six victory points. And while that is, of course, a very simple card and a very aggressive card, in the end, it was like, well, this game isn't really about manipulating the, the victory points of the game. It's really more about manipulating your adventurers and your uh, tavern and your quests. So we sort of reeled that back, and that transformed into what eventually became the free drinks card, where you steal an adventurer from someone else. Right. I love that card. I love the game. Like, I'm not going to lie. I, I have been... I introduced all my friends, and I am just a huge... I, I love the game so much. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, we had a question from Twitter, uh, and this is actually something that I would like to know myself, whether you can or cannot talk about it. Any chance for an expansion with more lords tied to the factors uh, other than quest groups? I guess so, factions, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So the uh, we do uh, like we have started thinking about an expansion. I obviously have no ability to announce anything for right. reals, but we're we're still just thinking about it. Uh, but we had kind of planned that like if it's successful, we we obviously want to think about expanding it. And even you'll notice that there's a a spot on the board for a sixth player marker at the bottom. If we ever did an expansion, I'd want to do like you know okay here's the the sixth player right. Uh, as for new lords, lords. The Lords of Waterdeep cards are actually the toughest thing in the game to design. And the reason for that is that they give you your points at the end of the game, but you don't track a lot of the things you do in a way that at the end of the game you could remember them. The reason they're tied to quests right now is at the end of the game, I've got my stack of quests and I can easily count those up and say, oh, okay, I had this many quests of this type. Or like building ownership at the end of the game, I know how many buildings I owned. But if we wanted to try to tie something to like entry cards, you don't keep track of how many entry cards right. you play, right? 
And we had some lords originally that were like, oh, you get points for every fighter you have in your tavern at the end of the game. That actually creates this weird situation where you don't want to play the game. You just want to stockpile fighters in mm-hmm. your tavern, and you don't want to play the game. And the, the game of completing quests and playing entry cards and things like that. So it they're really, really hard to design. And I think we've done some brainstorming about some future ones. We've got maybe two more lords that we mm-hmm. have designed that we think could work. But even then... It's they're, they're by far the hardest element to come right. up with. All right, uh, so I know we're running out of time here. I want to leave you with one last question. Okay. Uh, and I want to know, what was your key moment? Like, you, you talk about how much fun it was to design the game. I want you to try and pick just one moment where you're like, this is the reason I love both working here and designing this game. Because obviously this game's your baby, and it's well-received. My friends love it. Everybody here loves it. It's a very, very fun game. I want to know for you, like, what was that moment where you just kind of, like, st- sat back and went, yes. Uh, wow. It's really hard to pick one. Uh, I think the... Cl- <laughs> wow. Okay. You have to pick one. I have to pick one. Okay. <laughs> I think that might be the moment that our art director, Kevin Smith, brought me the board with the full art on it and all the graphic design and everything because up to that point we've been playing on these prototypes that we had just thrown together and <laughs> when Kevin brought me the printout of the board that's got the great art on it uh, Mike Schley's the artist and it's, it's beautiful city map and everything and all the buildings are kind of blown up and exaggerated and it's like as soon as I sat that down I was like this is a real board game. I have designed a real board game. This is not just something I made up that we're playing on the backs of magic cards anymore. People, humans in the real world will play this game on this board. And it's, it was the moment that it sort of sunk in that all this design work that we've done, all this noodling around of ideas and all this back and forth, all this playtesting was going to produce something that would then go out into the world and literally thousands of people would play and enjoy. And so there was that moment where it became real by virtue of the art. Nice. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Wow. Well, Rodney, I want to thank you very much for, nice. for coming in and talking to us about this game. Like I said, I love this game. So many people love this game. So thank you for creating this amazing game that I've shared with many friends. Sure. And again, thank you for talking to us about some of the behind-the-scenes stuff. I really appreciate you taking time. And my pleasure, man. It was a great process. I had great people to work with. Peter Lee, fantastic co-designer. Joe Huber, great lead developer. And like I said, Kevin did a smashing job on the, the art. So basically, it was the perfect storm of fun design, great people, great product. I, I think it is one of the best products we've ever put out. Nice. Thanks, Mike. Thanks. Thank you.